Would you take the Word of God this evening with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at the 15th Psalm, Psalm 15. Psalm 15, is. we're going to begin here reading in just a moment, and this psalm is um, begins with a question. There is um, another psalm, I think it's Psalm 24, that has a similar question. Uh, let me just read that portion. In Psalm 24, verse 3, the Bible says, "...who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord." And righteousness from God, uh, from the God of His salvation. So we have that question of who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord. And here in Psalm 15, we have uh, a question. Uh, before we begin here, I do want to make note that this question is asked as the psalmist is writing this. He is asking the question not of other men, he is asking this question of the Lord. Notice, Lord. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? So he is speaking to the Lord. And uh, I think it's important because this question here, this first question is not a question where we need to have the opinions of men. Uh, Let's stand together. Would you stand with me? We're going to read Psalm 15. It's five verses and we're going to begin reading verse 1, read down to verse 5. Psalm 15, verse 1, the Word of God says, Lord... Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned but he honoreth them that fear the Lord he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not he that putteth not out his money to usury nor taketh reward against the innocent he that doeth these things shall never be moved now I want to bring your attention back to the first verse Notice the first part of the question. First question, he says, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? I want to preach on that question. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening uh, for your word. And as we consider this psalm this evening, uh, help us, Lord, to have a clear answer as to what this psalm is teaching, what it means for us, that we would receive this evening not just knowledge from your word, uh, but a way in which we can practically apply your word to our lives, that we will use this time as we are confronted with your word as a time of self-examination as we ought to do. And Lord, as we examine ourselves by the standard of your word, 
I pray that we would leave this place not having just heard the word, but with a desire to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As your word says, help us, Lord, not to deceive ourselves, knowing that everything is open and naked in the sight of him with whom we have to do. And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Now, uh, in answer to that question, there are a list of, uh, I might call them characteristics, a characteristic of someone that belongs, we see in the tabernacle of the Lord and in the Lord's holy hill. And as we see here, there's going to be uh, 11 characteristics. Now, some of them can be combined, but I'm going to take each one uh, individually. But as we look here throughout the Bible, we find the same type of question, but then a different list. For example, in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 15, the Bible says, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, and shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil, he shall dwell on high, his place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks, bread shall be given him, uh, his water shall be, waters shall be sure. And so the idea here is the same. Uh, these are the characteristics of someone who makes uh, his dwelling on high. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, the Bible says, Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Is that the standard that God wants of me, just to come with a sacrifice? He says, Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Is that what God wants? And He says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The idea here is, who is it that dwells with the Lord on high? Who is it? What are the characteristics of those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. And throughout the Bible, these are just two examples. There are others. Um, the example in Habakkuk, he says, the just shall live by faith. And that, in that case, there is one characteristic. But throughout the Bible, you find many characteristics of those who dwell with the Lord. And so I want to answer those questions. And as we answer those questions, I'm going to talk about what is not meant by the questions and what is meant by those questions. I want to see here, we can break down this psalm into three parts. The first part is the first verse. We're going to see the consideration of communion. Who is it that dwells in the tabernacle of the Lord? Who is it that uh, dwells or who abides in the tabernacle of the Lord? Who is it that dwells in the holy hill of God? And so we're going to, uh, we see the consideration of communion. Then verse 2 uh, down through verse 11, we, we're going to look at the characteristics of communion. Those who do dwell in the tabernacle of the Lord and who do dwell in the holy hill of the Lord uh, have characteristics about them that you can distinguish them from others. And then 
the last sentence of the psalm is the last point, which is the consequence of communion. What is the result? We know the characteristics, but what is the result of those who have communion with God? Let's consider the first one here as we look at this 15th psalm. We see, first of all, the consideration of communion. The consideration here is there's a question that is asked. This question is basically, let's consider this point. Uh, Let's think about this question for a little while and then proceed to answer the question. But here is the subject matter. The first thing we notice about the consideration of communion here is to whom is the question asked of? These two questions here, if you notice, are not asked of men. Every man may have his own opinion, his own ideas about answering those questions. Well, who is it that, uh, what do you think? Who is it that, that abides in the Lord's tabernacle? Who is it that dwells in the holy hill of the Lord? Uh, the question is not asked of men. The questions are asked of the one who is referenced in the very first word of this psalm, Lord. The word Lord, if you have it in your Bible, is, should be all capitalized. L-O-R-D means Jehovah, the self-existent and eternal God. That's who we're talking about. That is who the psalmist is asking the question of. You see, it matters not what man has to say about these questions. It really doesn't. It only matters what the Lord himself and how he answers those questions. As we think about those two questions, we even ask who is the object of the question in question. (laughs) The focus has to be brought on the Lord of the tabernacle, the Lord of the holy hill. If you notice the way the question is asked is, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? He didn't say, Lord, who shall abide in the tabernacle? He says, thy tabernacle, who shall dwell, notice, in thy holy hill. And so the psalmist here really clearly writes, thy tabernacle and thy holy hill. The Lord is the object of this question. And and so when we think about the idea of a tabernacle and the holy hill, I'll talk about the differences between those two. But the idea here is that we're looking at the God of the tabernacle and the God of the holy hill. Sometimes if we're not careful, we say, oh, let's talk about the tabernacle for a little while. Let's talk about this holy hill and what those, men, what those mean. But notice the question here is concentrated on being asked of God. And this is about the Lord of the tabernacle. It's about the Lord of the holy hill. And so when we think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, what do we think about? We think about, well... The, the Levites, and we think about the priest who would go the daily um, rituals and the ceremonies that would take place within the uh, outer courts of the tabernacle and within the tabernacle and once a year in the Holy of Holies. And that's what we think about when we think about the tabernacle. We think about everything that concerns the tabernacle. If we're not careful, we can get bogged down with all the details and all the interactions and everything that goes on, and we forget about whose tabernacle it is. God is the object. It is His tabernacle. It is His holy hill. You see, what's much more important than religion is God. 
uh, what's much more important than the holy hill, this place of prominence, is the God of the holy hill. As we look at here these two questions, we, the question is, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? In those two questions, we think about the tabernacle. The word tabernacle really means a tent. It means uh, literally a covering. And so the tabernacle, when we think in Old Testament times, until the temple was built by King Solomon, the tabernacle was temporary. And it was frequently moved. It was carried basically from place to place. When you look at the Old Testament Israel, when they set up the tabernacle, they uh, ordered all the tribes uh, around the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was at the center of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, But the idea of the tabernacle was it was a place that was moved. It was not permanent. But when we think about a holy hill, that's a holy mount. A mountain or a hill is fixed and it is permanent. He says, the words that he uses are precise when he says, Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Knowing that the tabernacle moves from place to place, the word abide is used purposefully because the word abide literally means to turn aside from the road to sojourn as a guest. And so the idea here is that we come in and out of this tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is not a permanent place. uh, And we kind of come in and out of this tabernacle. We abide for a little while in our sojourning. And then we come out. But when we think about the word dwell, who shall abide in that tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The word dwelling is different than abiding. The word dwell means to lodge, to reside. It has the idea of making something a permanent stay. In the New Testament, let me put it this way, the Bible talks about uh, the earthly tabernacle, the house, our earthly tabernacle, one day is going to be dissolved. But the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says that uh, we have come, because we are in Christ, we have come uh, unto uh, Mount Zion, the Bible says. That's God's holy hill. And when we think about that, we know that we have a temporary place in the world, but we also have a permanent place in eternity. And so who is it that's going to be in communion with God in this world while he lives, but also have permanent communion with God forever? Who is that person? Now when we think about this psalm here and this question, we have to be very careful not to proceed in the psalm and say, well, here's how we uh, dwell and abide. No, no. It is important here to note that Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved, but it is a description of how saved people ought to live if they want to please God and have fellowship with Him. Now, it's important to say, to, to say those two things. This Psalm is not a prescription, it is a description of God's people who dwell and who abide. Now the reason why I say that is because if you think about when this psalm is written, it's in the Old Testament and if we know as thus far, let's say we uh, take the Bible uh, just 
the Old Testament. Let's say we don't have the New Testament. We only have the Old Testament. The only thing that we know about the tabernacle is that nobody can get in the presence of God. You remember it was that way before the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. The men, the, the mountain Sinai where God came down, no men could touch the mountain. If they were, to, they were to be thrust through with a spear. It is the place where the glory of God came down and no man was worthy to go there. God chose Moses to stand as an in-between between, between him and the people. But the point is, no man could rightly go unto Mount Sinai. And when the tabernacle was instituted, no man was worthy to go into the place where God dwelt. Now, we know that no man was worthy because uh, really once a year, the high priest would have the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies. But before he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to sprinkle blood on his vesture, the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed on the brazen altar. Before he went in, he had to sprinkle on his garment blood, reminding himself that he was not worthy to enter into the Holy of Holies. uh, And no man was worthy to enter into the Holy of Holies. When the tabernacle was instituted, the instruction was given that no man could go into the Holy of Holies. If any man got into the Holy of Holies, he would be dead in a moment. So the question, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? The answer we know is no one. Correct? No one is worthy to dwell in the place where God dwells. Who shall abide in thy holy hill? Well, the answer we know is no one is worthy. Well, then, how how can we... That's why we know here that verse 2 through verse 5 is not a prescription, but rather a description. It doesn't tell us how we can dwell because we know that no one can dwell. No one is worthy to be in the presence of God. Now, if you hold your place here, turn with me. I'll show you that in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. How is it that any man can be in the presence of God? How is it that any man can have communion with God? Doesn't the Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament, show us that no man is worthy to be in the presence of God? Hebrews 10 verse 19 shows us. The Bible says, now, uh, Hebrews 9 and 10 are two of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. So I'm not going to read, but let me show you the conclusion of what has been discussed in Hebrews 9 and 10, verse 19 of chapter 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Now, the verse is not ended, but this is a new idea in the New Testament. Uh, This letter being written to Hebrew Christians, those who by uh, lineage were Hebrews, Jews, who know the Old Testament way, who know what it means to not be worthy to enter into the presence of God, he writes to these believers who are familiar with the Jewish history, and he says, brethren, we have boldness. Nobody in the Old Testament had boldness to go into the holiest. No man could. No man was worthy. And now this is the idea that in Christ, that's why in Hebrews he says, Jesus Christ is better than angels. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is better than anything. And so he shows them here that, look, brethren, we have now boldness. There was no boldness before, but now we have boldness to enter into the holiest. But here's how. By the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ, he is worthy to dwell in the tabernacle of the Lord. 
He is worthy to dwell in God's holy hill because He is perfect. He is sinless. He is undefiled and separate from sinners. And we can have boldness to enter into this holy place, into the place where God dwells, into the place of communion with God, not because we are worthy, not because of our performance, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, by a new and living way. It is a new way, and it is a living way. I think he uses the word living way in part because if any man went into the Holy of Holies, he died. But now if we come into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells, we live. It's a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And so the idea here is how are we entering? There's a picture. The veil, you know what the veil represented in the tabernacle? Separation between God and man. And you know what, the, what happened when Jesus Christ died? The veil was rent twain from top to bottom. Here the Bible compares the veil to the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ died in his own flesh, in his own, uh, the, the sin that he took upon himself, he who was without sin became sin for us, that when his uh, flesh was marred, when it was torn, when it was beaten, when he died on the cross for us, the veil it opens the way for us to come into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Christ himself. He opens the veil for us to enter into the presence of God through the flesh of Christ. He says in verse 21, And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another and provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And so I hope we understand when we come to Psalm 15 and the Bible says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Here's the answer we have for us because we understand the Bible. No one but Jesus. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The answer is no one but Jesus. Now through Christ, we can enter into the holy of holies. With his merit, with his righteousness, the veil has been, the way has been opened up for us to dwell with God. That is the message of the entire Bible. We know the answer to that question. We are not worthy, but through Christ, we are made worthy. Now, there are, there are some characteristics of those who have been made worthy. He, he, here's what he says. And, and by the way, when we look at those two words, uh, one part of the question is talking about permanent the other is talking about temporary place. When he talks about who sh shall abide in thy tabernacle, who is able to come in and out of the presence of God at will? Who, who is in that place? Well, us as believers, we are in that place. We can come into the presence of God anytime, anywhere into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. And we also understand as Christians that we have a home in heaven that's promised for, for us, an eternal inheritance that is also in Jesus Christ. 
And so with, with those things in mind, we understand here that because of our standing in Christ, we have this opportunity, and now that we have fellowship with God, now that we have a relationship with God through Christ, what are the characteristic, what are the characteristics of those who are in the place of abiding? Of those who are in the place of dwelling. In other words, what are the characteristics of those who have an eternal home? What are the characteristics, the characteristics of those who, who, this, who know God personally and intimately? What are the characteristics? Well, let me give them to you. So we see, first of all, the consideration of communion. Communion with God is impossible, but not, but not for the grace of God through Christ. We consider, first, secondly, the characteristics of communion. Again, this is not a prescription. It is a description. And I'm going to give them to you, and I'm going to go through this rather quickly but I would like to put it this way, then in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17, when Paul is exhorting the church at Philippi, he writes this to them, and he says, This brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, here's what he says, is in heaven. You know where our citizenship is? The holy hill. That permanent, that's, where we, that's where our citizenship is. Our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. And so we understand that as Christians that we are citizens of heaven. Our behavior ought to be on earth as if we were citizens of heaven. It ought to be a reflection of our heavenly citizenship. Well, what is heaven described as? It is described by this. It is the place of God's dwelling. It is a holy place. Now, often people talk about holiness, and I think that today in the 21st century, people have no idea what it means to be holy. No idea what it means to be holy. And by the way, uh, sometimes people think, well, that only can, holiness, that's uh, just talking about uh, the way we dress. Absolutely not. It's much deeper and more profound than that. Here is a description of those whose citizenship is in heaven, those who not only have a citizenship in heaven, but also those who have communion with God. Characteristic number one, verse two. He that walketh uprightly first characteristic. This is the man that is truly what he professes to be. He that walketh uprightly. In other words, he uh, that is what he professes to be. The idea of someone who does not walk uprightly is someone who says he is something, but he does something else. It's someone who professes uh, uh, certain uh, characteristics, but those characteristics are not evident in his life. 
In 2 Corinthians 1, uh, or 1 verse 12, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you were. And so he says, You know the sincerity of our lives, that we have walked before you uprightly. The first characteristics of those who, uh, who abide in the tabernacle of the Lord, who dwell in the holy hill, are uh, those who walk uprightly, though uh, this is the man that truly, um, uh, that is truly what he professes to be. I remember uh, when we grew, grew up, growing up, um, three brothers. Uh, my dad is a, uh, he, he likes to laugh. He likes to cut up with people. And I remember being in that stage in my life where I um, was embarrassed by the things that my dad would say. You know, he, he would, uh, let's say we would go buy a drive through and, you know, uh, somebody has a piercing in the nose. And he looks at him and says, what's that in your nose? And then he, go, he would go on and on and on about it. And the person somehow would never get offended because it's the, the type of personality he has. But, you know, I would kind of sink down in my chair, kind of act like this. And he would say, he would uh, hit me and he says, don't, ashamed, don't, don't be ashamed uh, to, uh, to be associated with me, son. And the idea is you're, you're part of my family. And so identify with me. Identify with me. You see, I think that it seems clear today, at least in the 21st century, perhaps this has always been true, that there are people who claim the name of God, but they do it in a hidden way. They, they don't want to be known truly for what they profess to be. But as Christians, we ought not to be ashamed. We ought to walk uprightly in sincerity and godliness. Having a, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, a clear conscience. Holding uh, the faith in a pure conscience. There's a second characteristic. He says, he that worketh righteousness. This is the man who is uh, honest and just in all of his uh, uh, dealings. It is someone who is faithful to his engagements. Someone who is fair towards all those with whom he interacts. You see, that honesty in, that, in, in all of the dealing, that justice in all the dealings is very important. I was, uh, I, I've listed, we, uh, we got a van because our family is expanding. And so, um, I'm selling the other car so that I can pay off the van and I'm listing the car for sale. And you know I have a, the check engine light is on and so I have a code reader. And you know what I can do for the code reader? I can erase the check engine light. I can do that. Now eventually it comes back on, but somebody can come and be interested in the car and I could hit that check engine light off and pretend that nothing's wrong with the car and there's absolutely nothing wrong. Or I can be righteous in my dealings with men. Say, I want you to know the engine light's on. Actually, somebody came to look at the car the other day. I said, all right, this window doesn't work properly. 
check-ins lines on. This is uh, there's a scratch here. I wanted to make sure that they knew everything that was wrong with the car. You said there's a way we deal with people as Christians, and we ought not as Christians to deal with people the way that the world deals with people. We ought to be different as Christians, completely different. We ought to work righteousness. There's a third characteristic. He says, he that speaketh truth in his heart. Now, it's interesting here. I think that's a contrast from, remember, chapter uh, Psalm 14, when he says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's his desire. That's his wishes. That's not the truth. But those who, uh, notice, abide in the tabernacle of the Lord and who dwell in the holy hill, they speak the truth in their heart. This is the man who is open and honest with himself before God. You see, this is the man who knows that nothing is concealed, but everything is open and naked before the Almighty. Do we, do we realize we can't hide anything from God? We can live our lives and be religious and go to church, uh, but God knows our hearts. And those who know that God knows are uh, speak the truth in their hearts. They don't pretend and live their lives as if there was no God. There's a fourth characteristic, and that is he that backbiteth not with his tongue. If you notice, there's positive characteristics and negative characteristics. There are things that describe the life of the Christian that are positive. Here's what he does, and here's what he does not do. This is the man, uh, the one the Bible says, he that backbiteth not with his tongue. This is the man who is not double-tongued in this sense. Uh, He praises the man when he stands before him. But he speaks pervertly, perversely about that same man when he's behind him. That is someone that backbites with his tongue. You can be assured, if somebody comes to you constantly and says, talks about everybody else and what's wrong with everybody else, you can be sure they're talking about you. That seems evident. If all someone can do is talk about how everybody's doing wrong and criticize behind somebody's back, you can be assured that that person is not courageous enough to tell that to their, to their own face. And they will talk about you. He does not backbite with his tongue. He's not double-tongued. You're such a wonderful Christian. And you talk to somebody else, man, that person, he's a loser. You're backbiting with your tongue. That ought not to characterize the Christian there's a faith, fifth characteristic. He that doth not, uh, doeth not evil to his neighbor. This is the man who does not seek to injure his fellow man. He does not seek to engage in, you could say, bodily harm. He does not seek to engage in um, relational harm, try to uh, have chaos in a family. He does not seek to rob him of his possessions, uh, nor what is rightfully due unto him. And we talked about um, uh, I talked about when we talked about thou shalt not steal in uh, the Ten Commandments. There's the idea is we can take something from someone that is rightfully theirs, but also we can keep from giving something to someone that is also rightfully due to them. And uh, let me put it this way, as Christians, we're to have a ministry to one another in the church. And if we keep ourselves from ministering to one another, we are robbing what is rightfully due to, to a fellow Christian what is rightfully due unto them, what we ought to practice. And so here, he doeth not a evil to his neighbor. And by the way, that can be in both senses. You can try to harm somebody by what you say, 
Or you could see somebody in need of encouragement and you don't encourage them. Aren't, are you not harming them? Jesus Christ was without sin. He went about doing good. There are things that are negative that he did not do, things positive that he did do. If we're not careful, we define the Christian life by things that we don't do. That's half of it. The Christian life is defined by, yes, what we don't do, but it is as equally defined by what also we do. And we have to be very concerned about both aspects of Christian conduct. You see, there are extremes on both sides. Some Christians say, well, I just love everybody. And they never reprove sin. And that's wrong. But then there's other people on the other category. All they do is they reprove sin. And they never seek to go about to encourage. So there's extreme on both sides. And we have to do both as Christians. There's a sixth characteristic. He that taketh not up reproach against his neighbor. Now this is, this is the man that does not either raise a reproach against a man, but also he does not receive a reproach against another man. You see, he does not bring accusation against a man, nor does he receive or indulge and propagate the accusation against someone. That's known as gossiping. Now notice here, these are the characteristics of those who live a holy life. Somebody comes, I heard something about this person over here, says, I don't need to hear that. Doesn't concern me. We have to be very careful. He that taketh not up reproach against his neighbor... By the way, Proverbs 25, 23 says this. That north wind driveth away rain. So doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. Here the Bible gives us the remedy. If someone with a backbiting tongue comes to you and gives you some juicy information about somebody else, the Bible says you need to look angry at the person. I don't want to hear this. Are you kidding me? That's what the proverb says. But you know how what we do is, oh, I like this information. Right? Oh, this is good information. No, not for those who claim to know God. Characteristic number seven. He that doth not esteem a vile person. Now, there's both, if you notice, a positive and negative. He says, verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. But he, uh, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. So there's both a negative, positive. Notice, he does not esteem a vile person. This does not, uh, he does not give value to a vile person. Uh, you see, value is given by the time we spend with someone. Uh, value is given by the secret admiration that we give people. Now, in our country, right, you have Hollywood and influencers. And if we're not careful today, we can be on just our own devices and say, well, I wish I was that person. And they live a wicked lifestyle. We ought not to esteem. We ought not to value vile people. Value is given uh, by the desire for us to be like someone. Don't esteem them. Proverbs 3.31, you remember what uh, Saul, Solomon teaches his son, Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. 
Proverbs 23, 17. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water and they have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. They're trying to find satisfaction in other places but God. You see, th by the way, this does not contradict the command uh, that is given to us in 1 Peter 2.17 that says, Honor all men. You see, you can honor a man because he is a fellow human being without honoring and desiring what he does. You can respect him, reverence him, pray for him without desiring to be like him, without valuing what he does and desiring to have the things that he has. So he that does not esteem a vile person, but here's the opposite, he that honors those who fear God. You see, he, uh, he, he, he it is that uh, he knows how to find he knows how to find those who fear God. He seeks to emulate those who fear God. Though they may have less power than the vile person, though they may have less wealth than the vile person, less recognition, he holds those who fear God in high honor because he knows that these are the people with whom God is pleased. And so he is going to honor those men. So, he does not esteem a vile person, but he honors those that fear God. There's a ninth characteristic, and that is he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. What is that? This is the man who would rather live in good conscience over any secular interest and material advantage over others. This is the man who would rather suffer loss to himself than wrong his neighbor by breaking his oath. Now, if you notice, the verse very clearly says, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. I made a promise. And even if this promise is not going to work out for me, in the end, I'm going to keep my word. Because I'd rather keep my word and be hurt by it than not keep my word at all. And by the way, we're not talking about making a promise of doing something that's not evil to, that's evil to do. We're talking about just a commitment, making an oath, and not following through with your word. Characteristic number 10. He that putteth not out his money to usury. Now this is the man who will go about to proceed to increase his personal wealth by being unjust in his practices. Uh, it's the man who extorts his neighbor. Right Now, there's nothing wrong with interest. That's usury. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're given a loan, there's interest. But there is a principle in the Old Testament that says that if a poor man is in need, don't give them a loan and then charge them interest. The principle is give them the money. Don't use... Uh, now, if somebody is wealthy and you give them a loan, you charge them interest. But if you take advantage to make an extra buck on someone that's going through a difficult time then you're an extorter. 
Don't do that. There's a last characteristic, number 11. He that taketh not reward against the innocent. If we know the Old Testament here, we know that this is addressed specifically to those who have authority as judges. And the idea here is you don't take a bribe from somebody and deal unjustly with a man. Now this would be done for judges. Let's say somebody had uh, uh, condemned somebody else for doing a wrong, even though that person did no wrong, and then he came to the judge and said, hey, if you just rule in my favor, I'll give you this. That's bribe. And he says, God's people ought not to do that. These are the 11 characteristics of communion. Let's go back to the question. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Or who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Here is the description of those who have communion with God. In other words, you know they have communion with God by how they live. You can tell in their lives that there's evidence that comes about in their lives as well. They must have communion with God because some of those things, I mean, uh, somebody that's made a commitment, even if it hurts them, they follow through with it. Who else would do that but someone that fears God and somebody who knows God? So we see the consideration of communion, the characteristics of communion, but lastly, Notice the last sentence, the consequence of communion. He that doeth these things. What things? The eleven things we talked about. He that doeth these things. He who is known by these eleven characteristics of the one who has communion with God. He that doeth these things, here it is, shall never be moved. That's the consequence of communion. Now I want you to see, this is important. The result is not, oh look at me, I'm strong because of what I do. No, no, we have to go back to the first verse. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Well, no man but Christ. And those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ who have access to God, who can have boldness, who know God, who know who He is, that communion and fellowship, them abiding in the tabernacle, dwelling in the holy hill, has a profound impact on their lives. And as a matter of fact, you know who's been impacted by God because there are characteristics of those who've been impacted by God, by the divine influence upon their lives. And you know that they've been impacted by divine influence by what they do because in the end result is this. They are immovable. There's stability in their lives. They're, they're never moved. He shall never be moved. It is not that he shall never be moved because he is strong. He is never moved because he has communion with God. This is a man with deep stability. I'd like to go back to verse 1. You could say, put it this way, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Opposite characteristics. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He, he, now notice, in his law doth he meditate, he abides in the tabernacle of the Lord. He dwells in the holy hill. And so he that delighteth in the law of the Lord, meditate in the law of the Lord day and night, he shall be like a what? Tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The point is, he is unmovable. Not because he is strong, because his strength is rooted in his communion. So we have to take this psalm in the reverse. We want to stand, be unmovable. I think that's what we all want. We want stability in our lives. Everybody would say, well, yes, I want stability in my life. All right. Then we have to ask ourselves, are these characteristics given in Psalm 15 in our lives? And if we say yes, then we are unmovable. If we say no, then we have to say, okay, the problem is not that I need to try more to be those characteristics, is I have to go back to the place of communion. Because those characteristics are the outcome of communion. And those characteristics means that we're unmovable. So then if there's any problem in either the characteristics or being unmovable, we have to go back to the place where we can dwell, abide in the tabernacle, and dwell in the holy hill. Here's the wonderful thing. The access has been opened. The access has been opened. In Christ, we can come to God. He is our Father. We are His children. We cry, Romans 8 says, we cry, Abba, Father. You see, everything in the Christian life proceeds out of that communion and that relationship. And we can tell where we are in our relationship by the characteristics. And sometimes when we don't realize that the characteristics are not present, God will make us fall and make us move so that we can realize that those characteristics were not present, so that we can realize that because those characteristics were not present can be attributed to the fact that we were not in fellowship with God. So we have to go back to the source. Can't just deal with the symptoms of our Christian life. We have to go back to the root of where those things come from. And by the way, when any of those characteristics are present, we have to say in humility, it is because of the divine influence of God upon our lives. We can't take the credit for it. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me just give you one, Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So if the love of God is present in our lives in any measure... It's not because, oh, look at the kind of love I have. It's because the Holy Spirit and His divine influence has given us that love through the Holy Ghost. And so then we go back and we thank God for the place of communion. We don't take credit for the characteristics. We thank God for divine influence that has changed us and made us like Him.